Re-Eval brought to you by the Children's Rehabilitation Institute, Teleton USA. Hey, this is Laura. And this is Natalie. We're two therapists that work at CRIT, the Children's Rehabilitation Institute, Teleton USA. We wanted to provide the community with an outlet for their stories and resources for our families that may not have access or know how to begin. We hope that through these interviews, we can continue to serve our families and the pediatric therapy community with knowledge and education from a distance. Join us as we speak with some of our therapists, patients, and their families about their diagnosis and discuss how CRIT has helped them navigate their uni challenges. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, this month we are celebrating Spinal Muscular Atrophy Awareness Month in the month of August. Um, If you're like me, I had no idea what spinal muscular atrophy is before I came to CRIT. It's something that it is a rare diagnosis and not a lot of people know uh, just what goes on with this diagnosis and everything it entails. And um, I've learned so much since coming to CRIT. So I was so excited when we were able to highlight these uh, diagnoses going into August. And so I'm excited to learn with y'all as you listen. Um, Today, we have mother of Gabriel, Jenna, over the phone to educate us a little bit more about SMA and how it affects their family and her son. Enjoy. brought to you by Crit. Good morning, friends. So August is Spinal Muscular Atrophy Awareness Month, um, and the SMA community finds this time uh, to spotlight the work that they actually do for the community, as well as to continue to bring awareness to the diagnosis with hope to raise more funds in the process, right? Um, and for that reason, we'll be honoring one of our very own families here from the clinic to share their journey um, with spinal muscular atrophy, also known as SMA. Um, so welcome on the show today, mother of Gabriel, Jenna, and she's joining us over the phone. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. Of course. We're so excited to have you here. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about Gabriel? Of course. Uh, Gabriel is four years old. And he has SMA type 2. There's like four types of SMA. And he has type 2. So he uses a wheelchair for mobility. And uh, he was diagnosed a little after he was a year old. He was 14 months old whenever he was diagnosed. Okay, and so you said he has type 2. Would you mind sharing a little bit of information for someone that isn't familiar with this diagnosis, what that means? Yes. So actually, there's kind of it's kind of a division in the SMA community right now because you have children that are being treated pre-symptomatically, and you have children that got diagnosed later in life. Um, pre-symptomatic children are normally um, diagnosed during through the newborn screening, but the symptomatic children are, I guess typed out by different uh, they have different types so you have type well there's type 0, 1, 2, 3, and 4 so type 2 it normally means that you can sit up or possibly uh, crawl a little bit or maybe weight bear a little bit but Gabriel does not weight bear legs but he can sit up so he is determined to be a type 2 
Sounds good. And so you said you found out with um, Gabriel around 14 months. Um, yeah. Was there something in particular that you noticed or, um, or around, I guess, what time did you feel like you and your husband noticed something was different with him? So around five or six months, we noticed that, like, if we were playing with him, he wouldn't, like, jump on our laps or bear weight on his legs at all. And so we started asking the pediatrician, the pediatrician, kept ensuring that it was part of normal development, which is a very common story amongst a lot of people that go undiagnosed for a while. Um, so we were just told like, oh, this is totally normal. He'll eventually develop the ability to bear weight on his legs. Well, more time passed, more time passed. He never did. And he would sit up a little bit, but you could tell he was kind of getting weaker and we finally got a referral to a pediatric developmental pediatrician who then referred us to a neurologist. Then we had a series of tests and eventually was diagnosed with a basic blood test. Like after all these tests, it was like just a basic prick in the arm that diagnosed him with SMA, um, which meant he uh, has the he has a missing protein as the SMN1 gene, but he does have he does have copies of an SMN2 gene. He has three copies. So that's kind of like a backup gene that tells the muscles to move. But he's missing the main one that everybody has, the SMN1 um, gene. That makes sense. And you touched on it um, briefly, but you said um, the newborn screening, and I think months back, it might have been longer months back but uh you had told me that that's kind of something new um as far as testing sma or um trying to figure out what's going on in the newborn screening is that right yes so not every state tests for the same conditions and diseases in the newborn screenings which was a surprise to me i figured whenever i started learning about newborn screenings every test or every test was the same amongst the whole entire country which is not true. And um, SMA is currently not tested in every single state. Whenever Gabriel was born, uh, Texas was not testing for SMA in their newborn screening. And um, obviously that's where Gabriel was born, was in Texas. And as of about like, I think it was like maybe a month ago, um, they finally implemented testing for Texas I think we were like the 38th state or something like that. So we still have a little bit of ways to go to get every state to implement testing for the newborn screening. But I mean, it is huge. It is so huge. It's going to change the entire SMA community. If you can catch the diagnosis of SMA before symptomatic, before the babies become symptomatic, it's gonna. It's a total game changer because if we could have, um, it's hard to say, but like if we could have gotten Gabriel diagnosed before the symptoms started, before the atrophy and the muscle loss occurred, he could be walking today. And it's a hard thing to, like it's a hard pill to swallow to say that. But I mean, he's thriving. He's doing great. But if we could have had that newborn screening in place and got him diagnosed, he could have been treated at birth. And who knows? I mean, there's a whole new generation of kids right right behind Gabriel that are growing up now. and They're being treated right out of, right out of the gate, you know, and it's 
it's really cool to see how these kids are developing developing yeah and i mean i'm with you i'm totally surprised that like across the board they don't have um like a general testing for newborns, right? I know I know some of them are pretty general, but something like this, and I think as time passes and more research, um, hopefully, you know, they can have that across all 50 states um, to add this particular testing for newborns. Because I, I, I am super surprised when you told me that. I was like, wow. I mean, even Texas, I'm like, I can't believe like we just now are are starting to do this. And right. Then, I was so surprised. And I know, um, I mean, through different interviews we've, we've talked about and just in general in the therapy community, we, we talk a lot about like early childhood intervention. And so you're totally right in the sense of, um, you're not sure where he could have been if he was treated right off, right off the gate, as you're saying, but I mean, he's totally perfect the way he is. It's just one of those things that you think about, like, what if he was diagnosed at the time and. Um, I've also heard that story, you know, that you go into, uh, the doctor's office and they're like, you know, what, what is this? And, and the doctor's just kind of reassuring you that it, it, every child, cause it's totally true. Every child does develop at their own, um, rate differently. Right. So, uh, I, I've heard from many mothers that from here at, at the clinic that their recommendation is usually like, Hey, mother's intuition. If you feel like something is wrong. Uh-huh. ask again, ask again, ask again until you're heard. Um, yeah. and that way you can do what's best and, and know that you put the best, you know, effort in for your child. So, um, I think that y'all did that and it, it just took some more time and, and it's just kind of something to think about. Is that something that the SMA community, um, is involved with as far as like trying to bring that awareness so that all 50 States are, are doing this newborn screening? Yes, definitely. Um, I believe everybody's always talking about just like you're saying the same story like oh man i wish our pediatrician would have been aware but it is a rare condition like many conditions it's rare so the signs and symptoms are not always noticed by pediatricians and we actually went to three different pediatricians and so it's a very common thing that pediatricians just don't refer out for something that seems to be developed like a normal developmental milestone, just a little bit late, possibly something like that. But the SMA community is super involved. We have a lot of great organizations um, that push for more awareness. And um, I don't, I probably am not the best person to know exactly how they push it to pediatricians, but I do know that they, like Cure SMA is a huge one. The Gwendolyn Strong Foundation. I'm, there's so many in the SMA community that they just are constantly like staying out there in front of people's faces. Yeah, and a lot of time I feel like that's what's needed. It's like it's it's really easy to. Um, there are a lot of diagnoses there where I don't want to say a lot, but it, it's it's hard for people to kind of single out one thing. And so I think that it, you need that voice, you need that community to try to continue to spread that awareness. So I know that personally, I'm super grateful for it. So it keeps me educated and up to date on what's needed for, um, the children here in the clinic. Um, but also, like you said, it's just something like I'm a newish mother and it's something that wouldn't have even been on my radar to think that that wasn't something that was done here in the state that I live in too. So just, just something to keep in mind. Um, but I wanted to backtrack a little bit. Um, I, we, you know, we're talking about Gabriel and, and he wasn't diagnosed until he was 14 months, but, um, I was curious how, how was your pregnancy with Gabriel? Did it seem, um, I mean, I believe Gabriel's your only son, correct? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm not sure if you have anything to compare it to, but how, how did you feel like your pregnancy went? So because Gabriel is type 2, symptoms normally don't start to present themselves till he's around like 6, I think, I think they say like something like 6 to 8 to 12 months, something like that, because he's a stronger type 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, a type 1 baby, I would believe, they, type 1s, there's a huge range of children there too, but sometimes moms in that type group will experience maybe during their pregnancy, a little bit less movement. Um, but because Gabriel's tech two, his symptoms really didn't start till later. Like I remember him being born, like, so he was born full term. Everything went great. I remember him keeping me up at night, kicking me in my belly. Like (laughs) he was the typical, like, get this thing out of me type of kid. Um, so anyways, uh, he, Whenever he was born, he was, I remember everybody commenting, like, oh my gosh, he's holding his head up so well, like, oh, wow, he's so strong, and I mean, like, right right after he was born, he was lifting his head up, and then slowly, around four months, I remember I have a video, and he was wiggling his legs around, and then around five months, I was like, man, what is going on, and I have a video and I remember looking back, like he kind of slowly stopped moving his legs and it does affect every muscle, but Gabriel does seem to be more um, lower limb dominant, like where he has less, he has more weakness in his lower limbs. And so he was still moving and everything, but just, I could tell it was decreased and I'm glad I talked to the pediatrician about it. I just wish somebody would have listened, you know, and uh, maybe taken those concerns a little bit more serious. But it's always looking back. You're always like, oh, okay, yeah, I wish I would have seen that. But, um, yeah, for Gabriel, his pregnancy pregnancy (laughs) went totally normal. He was born full term. Everything really seemed extra perfect. And before... um he's diagnosed that you were you familiar at all with SMA no I had never heard of SMA it is a genetic condition so you would think oh was there somebody in your family with SMA um we we don't have anybody in our family with SMA I don't know anybody with SMA I've, I've probably met somebody but I didn't realize they had SMA nobody walks around with a sign on their back that's I have SMA um but yeah um it's kind of strange the way it works. So one in 50 people are estimated to be carriers of the condition. So my husband and I are both carriers, but we didn't know we were carriers and we didn't do any genetic testing because we found out we we're pregnant. We're like, well, it is what it is at this point, you know, like we're not going to backtrack and find out anything genetic. And maybe we should have, but anyways, there, there was a one in 50 chance that we were both carriers, and we were. And then there was a one in four chance that we also, because we're both carriers, there was a one in four chance that we would have a child with SMA. And we did. Wow. Yeah. 
That's crazy. And, and like, you don't hear these odds as much, um, at least on my end. Like, I have to really get into some deep reading to, like, to hear these things. So it's just kind of um, crazy. But I know here in the clinic, we do have a couple of, of children with different types of SMA. And so just kind of hearing the numbers, you know, it opens your eyes to how rare the diagnosis really is. Um, I'm just really curious. And, yeah, if you, I mean, just like me, if I, honestly, if I didn't work where I work or be around this uh, pediatric community and, and know what I know, I, yeah, you're going to get pregnant and you hope for the best and you're not thinking that you need to run a lot of tests, right? Before, if you don't have anybody in, in your family that's presenting with anything that you should be concerned with. So yeah, for y'all, same thing, you know, you're happy that you're pregnant and you're, Hey, let's, you know, what, what are the next steps here? You have a lot of other things to worry about. And it's, that's not really the first thing that comes to mind if you don't have any idea of what it is, you know what I mean? So that's totally understandable. Um, but after this, you know, he, you said that he had been diagnosed around 14 months. Um, what were your, as a family, what were your initial steps after receiving this diagnosis? So after he was diagnosed, um, there was one FDA approved treatment called Spinraza, and that is an intrathecal injection in the spine, like a spinal tap. And um, that was the only FDA approved treatment at that time. And there was also a trial um, for what is now called Zolpidenzima. And that is um, it's called gene replacement therapy. So that missing gene I talked about earlier, the SMN1 gene, it kind of puts that missing gene back into their body. So like these kids get genetically modified. So there was a trial up in Dallas for that it was not FDA approved at the time. And um, immediately I had a really amazing pediatric neurologist. Um, oh, that was another thing. Trying to get in with all these specialists was waiting and waiting and calling. It became like my full-time job to call and annoy all these people at the front desk. And finally I found one in San Antonio and he took us as a, I had terrible insurance at the time. And he took us as like a cash pay customer he um, let he saw it right away. Like he only made us wait like I think three weeks, where everybody else had like I don't know. One of the waiting list was a year long. It was, wow. and I mean, like I pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed for I need answers now. Like I'm not waiting anymore. So he was referred at nine months. He wasn't diagnosed until 14 months. That was like all doctors' waiting time, testing, all that stuff. But anyways. <laughs> Just go backwards a little bit. Um, yeah, we, uh, after we were diagnosed, he immediately was like, there's a trial up in Dallas. I already talked to the, the head doctor up there. They are going to consider Gabriel. Um, this is the best route. I want you to do your own research. He advocated us for us to learn about it ourselves as well. We went home, of course. I actually remember the night before he was diagnosed, my dad sent me a text and he said, this sounds like it might be Gabriel's diagnosis. And because um, all we had gotten a test result back for it was um, this thing called an EMT where they stick needles all over him. And um, all we got back from that was that it was a lower motor neuron disease. And so, of course, we're turning to Google because we want answers yesterday, you know, yeah. and uh so my dad and my whole family was just Googling everything, like every lower motor neuron disease they could find. 
and my dad happened to come across SMA and he sent it to me and he said, this sounds like Gabriel. And so the night before we got the call that his blood work came back and it was SMA, like we already all kind of knew that's what it was. And so our research had already started. We already knew about Sinraza before we went into the office. We already knew about um, possibly there being trials out there. We knew about a lot of stuff. But um, so we, we got the referral. We called the trial clinic up in Dallas. We were already making plans to basically, like, I have an aunt that lives in Dallas. She already, like, She's amazing. She was like, you can come live in our house while you're at the trials. Like, she was just so awesome. And um, that's just how our family is. Luckily, I have a family that rallied around us. And um, we got all the records sent over, but we were not accepted to the trial in the end. And we were at the tail end of the trial. So we also probably wouldn't have ever been accepted because they were closing up, like, who they were allowing in anyways. And so um, we didn't get into the trial, so we found another pediatric neurologist in our area who does uh, the Neuraza treatment specifically, because then that's the next step. We couldn't stay with our pediatric neurologist because he doesn't do the Neuraza. So we found one, and that's another thing. The community in the area, like, I turned to Facebook, and I found a group, and I was just like, somebody help what do I do all these neurologists have waiting lists I don't know what to do and I had a girl from Fair Oaks reach out to me and she was like oh I know I've already messaged the neurologist they're expecting your call tomorrow don't worry and it was just like that I got in I got a I got set up with our first appointment within a week and we started Spinraza like a month later after insurance approval because that's another thing we started Spinraza and um, you start with four doses, like, within, I don't know, like, two or three months or something like that. It's called your loading doses. Each shot is, like, $125,000. That's so crazy. I know. So Gabriel is definitely, an, he's had 12 doses now, I believe. So he's worth well over a million dollars. That's a really way, that's a funny way to put it. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, going back a little bit, I'm like blown away, um, by the lake work, right? I mean, from day one, you're noticing something's different, but after that nine month referral, it is like you said, nonstop, it's a full-time job. Now you're really trying to make sure, um, that you're doing your research on your end and, and, you know, thankfully you have this really supportive family to kind of back you up and, and help and you know, leave it to a determined mom to, you know, to make things happen. And, and have it work out this way. And I mean, honestly, Facebook gets some bad rap every once in a while, but I mean, without these communities and I, I personally don't have Facebook, but I mean, I've, I get a lot of guidance from my friends and like, you should join this face, you know, this mom group and this is not, and they have like really informative things. And without that, you know, Gabriel may have not been seen as quickly as he did. That's super, um, super cool that, you know, this random, I'm assuming you don't know her, but part of the community, part of the SMA community reached out and was able to help you, um, and your family the way they did. So that's just really, yeah. uh, that's really interesting. But, um, after this, and you know, you, you talked about Spinraza, um, how you, you said that it's interfecal, kind of like a spinal tap. How does it affect Gabriel initially? Like how, how does he present afterwards? So, Basically, Spinraza is designed 
to slow down and almost stop the progression of this disease. So once atrophy takes place, you can't replace lost motor neurons. Like they're gone, they're gone forever, unless some new technology comes out um, that changes that, which who knows what's in the future. Um, so what he's lost is lost. And um, now the focus is to stop the progression and basically that backup SMN2 gene that I, I spoke of earlier is the one he has three copies of. So that's something our body naturally has, everybody has, but he's missing that SMN1 gene and that sends uh, signals to the muscles to tell him to move, right? And that SMN2 gene, it's a backup copy. So it's not as good at sending those signals sufficiently. And SMN, the Spinraza tells the SMN2 gene, send more, you can do it. Like basically in a nutshell is telling that gene to kind of turn back on. Yes, send those signals, get stronger. So basically it sends more of the correct signals so then less atrophy takes place and he can focus on building the muscles that he does have. So whenever he's making gains, um, like recently he got into, he can more easily get in like the all fours position. Um, whenever he's making gains like that, it's based off of using muscles that he hasn't lost basically. Um, Cause I mean, muscles are designed if you don't, if you don't use it, you lose it. So, um, yeah, that's how Spinraza works. It just kind of sends more of the correct signals to the muscle. So you're not losing your muscles. That makes total sense. So have a better help with communicating, like you said, to the muscles as far as, um, what they need to produce versus losing. Right. But, um, we've talked about it, um, with Gabriel before. And I think you've said that, you know, sometimes Spinraza, you see a significant increase in, uh, tolerance to activity. And like you said, gains within, um, day-to-day activities. And sometimes you have this wave where it kind of goes down. I don't know if you mind talking about that a little bit. Oh yeah. So, I mean, Gabriel's only four, so he's still growing, you know? And, um, there's kind of like fluctuations in his ability sometimes like one week to the next he could be like doing totally different things a little bit like you're like last week he was getting on all fours and this week he's barely rolling over sometimes and um it's because one he's growing still and two there's just like natural fluctuations in the way those signals are sent because of the spinraza. And so some people notice it towards the end of between each dose. So like if I have a dose coming up next month, some people may say they notice like a decrease in activity. I don't really notice it based on shot to shot. I kind of notice it like on weeks, he just happens to be more tired. And who knows? I mean, like, like I said, he's growing. There's so many like variables that come into play that could cause him to have like fluctuations in his abilities. So um, some people will say there are fluctuations with Spinraza, but I haven't really noticed it in comparison to the shot itself or whatever. But there's also an oral medication that's new with the FDA approved. It's called Rizipam or no, wait, that was the trial name. Uh, Eversty, I think it's called. And uh, that one's an oral medication 
we haven't we we have not switched Gabriel over to that. We prefer the Spinraza for right now because it's working. Um, but the oral medications, some people have said they don't really notice those fluctuations as much, or um, maybe they were having symptoms with Spinraza, or maybe because it goes through the spine and so many kids have severe scoliosis, they couldn't get Spinraza for whatever reason. Um, so the oral medication works better for them, but. It's not the same as Spinraza, but it works similar. Where it, sends, it works with that SMN2 gene to send more of the correct signal to the muscles. But um, they yeah. say fluctuations aren't as big with ris- or uh, Eversy. I always want to call all these drugs their trial names because <laughs> you get so used to talking about them in their trial versions. So whenever they change the drug name, I'm like, well, why'd you do that? (laughs) (laughs) And that's just, I mean, more to say about you and how up to date you are with um, the research for your son. I feel like, you know, you've become your own little specialist in in what you know and the research that you do. So that's just really interesting to me that you are going by the trial name versus (laughs) versus what's been approved. Um, And I do, I I like that you, you know, kind of put that out there for someone who does have scoliosis and is able to get that spinal tap. There are other options options out there for them that people are trying to put together. So, um, that's just really something to know about. Cause like you said, um, depending on your type, uh, depending on when you were started to be treated, you're not sure if, um, having that low, uh, tone, that hypotone throughout the trunk as well is going to limit your mobility and you may, you know, it's common for you to have some sort of weakness. And so you can get scoliosis. And so I just, I, I love that they're still continuing that research for people that just don't have have um the other option to do spin rosas that's really that's really cool to hear um and how often does gabriel or how often are you supposed to be receiving the spin rosa dose so the spin rosa um i kind of touched on that earlier you start with four loading doses and it's kind of a strange schedule it's like the first one's like two weeks apart and then i don't know but within like i think three months you get your first four doses and that kind of like pushes everything to turn on full blast And then from there, you get what's called maintenance doses, and you get those every four months. So Gabriel goes, um, he's with Dr. Svoboda here in San Antonio, and we go downtown to Chosa and the Children's Hospital, and um, he goes under anesthesia, and they, they do this. It's so funny. They go through all this, and it's literally a two-minute procedure where they do the spinal tap, and... Um, he has to go through everything, but he can't move. That's why he has to go under anesthesia. You have to be very still because you're working with the spine, right? So um, every four months he gets Spinraza. And by now, Gabriel knows what's up. He knows he's going to get spoiled afterwards. <laughs> and he knows the drill. And it's kind of cool because you get to know the nurses. You know the pre-op nurses. You know the post-op nurses. You know all the anesthesiologists. Like... So we got a pretty good drill going on now. Well, that's good. I'm glad that, you know, hopefully he gets comfortable there and he, it sounds like he's comfortable there. So he, you know, it's not something that's new to him and can be scary because I know going under anesthesia for anybody is just not the funnest thing. Um, so I'm glad, I'm glad that he, he can get that going. And you did touch base a little bit on how expensive this drug is. And I don't know if you mm-hmm. mind me asking, is this something that is covered by insurance? So for us yes that was kind of part of our first hiccup is getting insurance to cover it and it's not because they didn't want to it was just paperwork complications you know like 
but there was no way we could get started without insurance approving it. I mean, who has $125,000 sitting around? So each dose is like $125,000 about. Um, I've seen that people say it's more, some people say it's less, and that's just in the United States. I don't know about other countries and um, availability in other countries or price in other countries, but here in America, it is um, 125 per dose, and um, the Zolgensma, that's the gene replacement one that I talked about. I think that one was like $2.1 million, but you only need it once. You just need it once, and then you're done. Um, and then the Rizaplam, I don't know how much, or not Rizaplam, Everski. See, I'll never get it right. Uh, <laughs> Everski, the oral medication that I talked about, I don't know how much it is, but I, I do know it's not possible to pay for it necessarily out of pocket. Um, they do, all of the pharmaceutical companies, like we are with Spinraza, therefore we're with Biogen as the um, pharmaceutical company. They help, they have the copay assistance program. So right out of the gate, a lot of times in January, if our Spinraza dose falls, then uh, people, some people have like high deductibles or copays or whatever, and they can't afford $4,000 in January or whatever it may be. Um, so Biogen um, helps you set up a copay assistance program and they help cover some of that cost depending on your needs. So it's really awesome that all these pharmaceutical companies will jump in and help get those gaps covered. Yeah, that's super great. I cannot imagine paying for 125,000, 2.0 whatever million. I know. It's a lot of money. And I mean, these are like necessities for your children. Again, I think that yeah. there's so much uh, to say about, yeah, at least that they are trying to help you cover. They know that it's needed and um, you're not having to pay out of pocket. And if so, not anything near the amount that it would be if um, without that assistance. So I'm really glad to hear that. Um, but I, I did want to backtrack a little bit. So you're talking, um, you know, we're hearing about kind of Gabriel's journey towards his diagnosis. Um, and I was kind of curious, I guess. So when did you start doing any type of therapy with him? You said that he was diagnosed around 14 months. Uh, y'all went through the process of getting that, uh, first dose of Spinraza. And then from there, did you start therapy or did you do ECI? Yeah, so we were already in ECI. Like, I think he started around, like, 11 months with Easter Seals here in San Antonio. And they come to your house. And uh, so we were already doing therapy. And uh, it was definitely a struggle because you also have to realize this was pre-Spinraza. So his weakness was getting significantly, like, more and more over time. Like, I remember one time specifically he fell over. He was sitting up in his bassinet and he would fall over face first all the time and just be stuck there. Like, he couldn't move. He would just be crying, like, help me, because he couldn't push. He didn't have the strength to push himself back up. So because we didn't know his diagnosis, Easter Seals would kind of try to work off for the last time they worked with him, but he was getting significantly weaker um, pretty rapidly. So last time, maybe he could sit up and push himself up, whereas that next time, maybe he was really struggling with that. And like I said, there's fluctuations um, with everybody. So we were working with Easter Seals, and 
then we moved to Crit, and that's been where we've been at ever since. And we were so lucky. I had a friend. Um, I had a friend. That's the most thing. The community. I've talked about that before, but uh, she was just so amazing. She was like, "My daughter is at. Well, yeah, my daughter's at Crit, and you got to come to this place. You got to check it out. It's not." It's like some therapy center. And in my mind, I was like, I have so much going on. The last thing I want to do is kick these people that come to my doorstep out, you know? Yeah. But every session for Gabriel was just tears, 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 because he was being pushed. He was tired. He was overwhelmed. Um, and he was in his own space. I think that was a big thing. He was in his own space and in his territory and feeling like, oh, I don't want to work. I want to play with my toys. Leave me alone, people. <laughs> yeah, so I don't blame them. <laughs> our sessions were not going so well. And my friend Emily got me into crit and she was like, you got to talk to them. Like, this is going to be a game changer. You have no idea. And I was like, okay. And I was kind of leery because I was like, not sure what crit was. I had never, I don't live on, y'all side of town over by crit and so i never really like drove by it or anything um i never saw the beautiful colored building or anything so i was just like okay i do need to figure something else out because what we're doing isn't working and i think within like two weeks i kept calling and calling and calling and calling and finally i got through and um they were like, we have a spot. And I was like, are you serious? Are you serious? And I was so excited. And we got in, and I think he started around, like, I want to say 16 to 17 months old. And uh, it was really cool to walk into that place because it was just like, what is this place? This place is so cool. <laughs> and uh, we started with evaluations, and you see all the specialties, like, everybody. Like, even the nutritionists, I mean, like, a doctor was there, a pediatrician, a nutritionist, the uh, OT speech, then the PTs. And, like, what amazed me, the first thing I noticed whenever I walked in and did a tour was the kids weren't crying. And I was just, like, I left in tears myself because I was, like, oh, my gosh, Gabriel might not be crying every session. And sure enough, he wasn't. He loves going. He has a fun time. He says hi to everybody. Um, right now, he gets stickers, which he thinks is pretty cool with his uh, the ones that y'all put on their backs right now that say their, <laughs> their temperatures. <laughs> and so he thinks he's going to get stickers every time forever. So The, plus, the pluses of COVID. <laughs> yeah. Of COVID. And so anyways, yeah, it was really cool. And so we, we, we've never really been anywhere else um, other than our in-home therapies and he started therapies there, and it's been pretty great since. Um, and I need to set a quick disclaimer. Um, kids totally still crying. Or <laughs> it happens. I mean, you're totally right. I mean, we're we're pushing kids out of their comfort zone. So in their home, I see that being really like for me, more challenging because I've done home health and it's hard to kind of differentiate like this is work, this is um, playtime. And so trying our best to kind of uh, mix those two here in the clinic is our ultimate goal, right? They're going to be playing, yet we're sneaking in work so that they're having a time while we're yeah. doing challenging things because um, it can get hard and, and it Sometimes that's their best way of communication, right? Is crying. So I, right. I totally. And Gabriel totally understand was that. not. 
he whenever he was at home he was like in his own territory and then he also that was before spinraza ever started like i said and when by the time he started with crit he had already started spinraza so then maybe that like burst of energy started and i think that was a game changer too once he got spinraza he was able to maintain a little bit more strength and was able to participate a little bit more than before. Definitely, definitely. I mean, um, just from the months that I've seen him, you, you do see a change. You know, you have um, that initial dose and you can see some huge gains initially. You notice that he, and it may not be um, huge for someone else, but just the fact that he's able to like independent play and he's moving around, he's more confident with himself, uh, shows a lot more. Cause sometimes when, you know, you notice that he's a little apprehensive, I think it's his way of letting you know, like, Hey, I feel a little weaker. He feels like he may fall. He's a smart guy. So he knows that he has these limitations. Um, although he's in this really like I don't know if he's always been this way and I just noticed, but he's in this like super adventurous phase where he's like, you know, I'm going to toss myself off this and see how it goes. <laughs> but I think that's just like a normal four-year-old boy. So I, I think that's totally fine. <laughs> yeah. Everything has maps at print because yeah, yes, it, makes the, it makes the sessions interesting, keeps us on our toes for sure. But it's just, uh, it's always really fun working with him and he, he's really he, he does great in everything that he does. So I really love that. Um, and you've talked about it a lot. So this SMA community, I feel like has helped you, uh, in more ways than one, right? They've gotten you in contact with credit. They've gotten you in contact with like getting that, um, appointment in for spin Raza. Um, but I don't know if they, y'all have any like particular events. So in August, are y'all, do you know if there's any plan to host anything to continue to spread awareness for SMA? Yeah. So actually one of the the girl, Jessica, who reached out to me with Dr. Svoboda's information and got me connected right away, um, she actually runs a, what's called the SMA, well, it's called the Smash Dash, S-M-A-S-H, Smash Dash, and it's in Fair Oaks. It's Saturday, August 14th this year, but every August, she hosts the Smash Dash to raise awareness for SMA, and she, uh, all the proceeds go to the Gwendolyn Strong Foundation and Cure SMA. And I think, I mean, last year, I want to say they still raised, like, I think it was, like, around eleven or 14000 or something like that. Wow. Still being COVID. And I think the year before that, they raised, like, I want to say thirty five or 40000 So, I mean... They do a really, she does an amazing job. And I mean, she works. She's a mom. She has kids. Like, she does it all and she puts all this together. And um, it's all just to raise awareness for SMA and continue to support the community. Because Cure SMA and Gwendolyn Strong, like, they turn around and they don't just like, they don't just like, I don't know, push out a bunch of pamphlets. Like, when we were diagnosed, Cure SMA sent us tons of information a care package like filled with toys that were appropriate for gabriel that were stimulating to him um because i i don't know if i ever mentioned it but sma children they're still cognitively like typical they still have all the same characteristics as like a typical child you know they just their muscles are weaker um so they said some great toys that were perfect for his age and for 
that he could still play with, like buttons that weren't too hard to push and things like that. And um, in fact, QSMA, where they gave us our wheelchair, or not our, Gabriel's wheelchair uh, is on loan from them. So, I mean, these organizations do so much for the community. And for us specifically, we've benefited a whole lot from them. So definitely, if you're in the San Antonio area, I would highly suggest coming to the Smash Dash because it's really fun and they always have tacos afterwards. And <laughs> That's the way to get any San Antonio in there, right? Bring some tacos, <laughs> learn about SMA, but tacos exactly. afterwards. Yeah. I love that. But no, that is so cool. I had no idea that Cure SMA um, did that much for you. I mean, uh, the wheelchair alone, I mean, I've, I've been reading things. I think July is disability pride month, right? So, uh, I was reading things and, uh, about people and how they feel they should be treated and, um, independence in the community and different things. And one of the things that I, I kind of stuck with me is that, uh, a wheelchair is an extension of their body. Right. So for someone like Gabriel, who, like you said, he has very low tone in his legs. He isn't able to walk. He isn't able to independently crawl um, as a form of transportation. This is this is part of his body. This is him. So I, I think that that's crazy and not maybe not crazy as that word, but just amazing that Kira SMA is providing um, this transportation and another form of him to be independent, which is what we want for, um, any of the children here that come. But, um, I know for you as a mother, like Gabriel, like runs the halls here now. So (laughs) having that ability and, and I'm just so thankful for such an amazing organization to continue to, to help people like you and your families. And, um, I'm, I'm going to have to pick their brain on some of the toys, see if we can get some of those specific toys. I thought that was really cool that you said that there are buttons that are just a little, less hard to press. It's something you don't think about until, uh, your child or maybe your patient isn't able to do it. So I think that's really amazing that they're putting this stuff together and having this care package for y'all. Like it's hard. And I mean, through this conversation, you've kind of opened my eyes on how much more I already knew you did a lot, but how much more you do for Gabriel. And so it's really nice to have that support through the community and through these organizations to, to keep y'all going and and really keep y'all well informed on what's going on. So, um, that's, that's really cool to hear. Um, but other than that, so we've talked about the smash dash, I will hopefully be joining. I'm going to put it on my calendar. Um, but would you, do you have any resources? You talked a lot about Cure SMA, but any resources that you'd like to share for someone looking into just having more knowledge about SMA or maybe a family that was just recently diagnosed? I think for the biggest thing is to, I mean, like you said, social media sometimes gets a bad rep, but Facebook has been huge for us. Like we can ask questions. We can talk to other moms. We can talk to other families. We can, I can see you like, adults with SMA interacting in Facebook groups um, and kind of get their perspective too because sometimes I don't think about it when I'm sitting in the doctor's office I'm talking at Gabriel you know and I I remember somebody commented one time how much that bothered them as like a kid so I try to be careful about those types of things and things that I mean just bring awareness about the how everybody feels about it is so important so the community Facebook groups are great. There's one like the SMA support system and there's one for moms. I think it's like SMA mom or something like that. Um, those have been so good for, for me specifically just to ask 
questions and get support and just uh, be able to, I mean, vent sometimes to like-minded people. I mean, they, they know exactly what we're all going through and experiencing and um, just getting ideas about toys or what's best. Like there's always like Amazon wish list and supporting each other. So it's really cool. Um, I think that would be the biggest thing. And then normally once you get on one of those, for whatever reason, I don't know how it works out, but there's always like this designated person that will jump in and help you right away with post-diagnosis and take your hand and walk you through everything you need to. I, for me, it was just like everybody started coming out of the woodwork to help me. Like uh, Jessica called and calmed me down and got me in touch with a uh, neurologist. Another friend, Emily, she got me connected with it. Like, all these people just start coming out of the woodwork and it just always seems to work out that way that just one person makes sure that you get to that next step. And um, I think that's so important is you feel overwhelmed by so many things that need to be done that there's going to be somebody that's going to step in and help you get to from point A to point B. That's awesome. I, yeah, I can't, um, I can't imagine what y'all go through on the day to day. I know that it can be overwhelming just being like a full-time mom and having a neurotypical child. And, um, on top of that, putting together, like you said, it's another full-time job having to deal with these insurances and, um, everything, insurance appointments and all of the above to try to make sure that your child is getting the best care that they need. So, uh, definitely kudos to all of y'all. And it's just amazing to hear that there are those people out there, you know, sometimes, you know, I tend to dwell on the bad news in 2020, 21, there's been a lot of crazy things happening, but there are amazing people out there still. And I'm just really happy that y'all were able to meet those people and you're still in contact with them. And they brought you to us cause we love y'all here. <laughs> Um, good. Black, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> um, last thing, do you have any words of advice for someone who is going through a similar situation? Um, personally, I know it's overwhelming. My best advice is just keep going. Don't give up. I mean, it is, it's exhausting and you're going to probably have moments of tears, but those first days are so important so unfortunately a lot's gonna fall by the wayside and you just got to keep pushing because it's all for your for your child you know so just don't give up would be my best advice I love it. I really do. I want to thank you so much for your time. I know with everything said, now everybody knows that you're very, very busy. <laughs> so I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us this morning. Um, and yeah, and we hope you have a really rest, rest of your day. Oh, thank you. You are listening to the Re-Eval brought to you by Crit. Uh, I think one thing that I did not realize with spinal muscular atrophy or any rare diagnosis, I mean, I'm not a mother um, and I hope to be one day and this is something to definitely take into account was how long it took them to get into a clinic to uh, see a specialist for diagnosis. Um, when you notice that your kid is uh, having these deficits and they're not making the milestones, they're difficult moving, 
Um, that is crazy that it took them so long to be able to get this diagnosis of spinal muscular atrophy and it goes through a lot of tears and pain and you, you definitely want to see your child thrive and yet they can't because they just can't get in to see a specialist. That's just crazy to me. Um, and I know she mentioned that it is a little bit better now, um, but that is just something that I had no idea about and I, moving forward, continue to hope to be more educated about and that more awareness is spread. Yeah, I I think one of the things that um, jumped out to me, and I think with all of these interviews that we've done with these parents, um, the legwork that goes into not only preparing themselves, but preparing their children to understand uh, this diagnosis. He, I, from what I remember, he, I believe he was diagnosed at 14 months. And so um, having him understand how to uh, be as independent as possible, I thought was just so important. Um, but the amount of um, support that she had through the entire SMA community, I thought was really something awesome to hear um, because, you know, going into this, she had told us that she didn't know anything about SMA prior to the diagnosis, prior to uh, realizing that something might be different. And so um, having the ability to have those people reach out, having an amazing organization like Cure SMA to provide her that package of specific toys. And it, it's something that you don't, um, I guess, necessarily day to day, I wouldn't think of it if I didn't work at this clinic um, and if I wasn't surrounded by these amazing families, but having a button that is easier to push is just so cool. Like I can't, I can't put that to enough um, that they have put together this amount of toys to help these kids feel independent and have them play and have them, um, you know, have a good time and they don't have to think about, Hey, I can't even push this button. So I thought that was just really awesome. Um, also the fact that it, took or it's still taking so long for more states uh, here in the U.S. to have that as part of the newborn screening. I think she had told us that only 38 states out of the 50 have um, SMA as part of the newborn screening and Texas just recently received that. So that kind of blew my mind. And I think that um, through the advocacy of the SMA community and Jenna and her amazing community um, that we can make it all 50 one day, right? That's that's my goal now. Absolutely. I think another thing um, that she talked about was just knowing your resources and really getting to know. I don't know how many times she tried to put herself and Gabriel into like a clinical trial and whether they were turned down or successful. So we're now it's, it's a normal treatment for SMA. Um, she kept fighting and I know um, he was diagnosed at 14 months, but they started treatment, I believe she said at nine months. Um, and they tried other PTs and because the diagnosis wasn't known, they had to find the right resource to make it work for him. And fortunately, Crit was a good match for them and they're still here and we love them, of course. Um, but that's just so important to make your voice heard and really get to see those resources, like you said, uh, Cure SMA and just other community events that are going on. Yeah, and just back to that, um, you're saying community events. She did say um, August 14th, they will be having their smash dash here in San Antonio. Um, we can hopefully get more information about that and uh, put it on a later show. Um, but if you're here in San Antonio, look it up, smash dash, um, to again, help provide uh, that awareness that's needed for SMA. They need as much help as they can in order to continue to raise funds. Um, these clinical trials are not cheap and it's very fortunate that Jen and her family have uh, the insurance and um, those second secondhand um, assistance through the other program that she spoke of to get that cleared because I just it, it's so crazy that this uh, still is costing so much money and I, I understand it but at the same time it's like 
this is something they absolutely need. Um, so hopefully we can we can help, even if it's in a little way, to help spread that awareness on SMA. So August 14th, if you're here in San Antonio. As a nonprofit, we couldn't do what we do without your support. Please visit us at critusa.org for more information on our organization, as well to find a link to donate. We would love to hear feedback from you. As mentioned, we are a podcast to serve you. We are reserving the final portion of each episode to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at critusa.org for questions or topics that you would like to be covered. For more information about the re-eval, please visit critusa.org. Thank you for listening. The information presented on this podcast is not intended to be used as medical advice. Please continue to follow the recommendations of your physician and or other healthcare providers. Please refer to your physician prior to initiating any modifications to your current healthcare regimens.